When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canadaland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join, or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Government meddling, insolvency filings, and Saudi Canadian diplomacy. Why haven't we done an episode on post-secondary education before now, Jonathan? I had no idea Ontario's university system was so dramatic. I mean, on the one hand, university politics. But on the other hand, I mean, who would have guessed that giant public-private hybrid institutions sitting atop tens or hundreds of millions of dollars and catering to a wide variety of often contradictory interests might result in some conflict now and again. Earlier this month, Laurentian University announced it was insolvent and filed for creditor protection. The Sudbury School was unable to meet its payroll obligations in February, and the Ford government is considering taking over management of its finances. But Laurentian's financial woes are just the tip of the iceberg, or perhaps the canary in the nickel mine when it comes to fiscal problems at Ontario's post-secondary institutions. Basically, the entire business model for universities is totally fucked. And, I mean, even the need to have a business model in the first place is kind of fucked. And the Ford government is, well, not helping matters. The PCs spent the first two and a half years of their term micromanaging how universities operate. But when it comes to Laurentian, it turned out they knew how bad it was for months and failed to step in until court papers were filed. It's almost as if they're reluctant to take action to head off a foreseeable catastrophe before it reaches a crisis point. Welcome to Ontario, where it's government by pandemic. Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today. And while I don't have especially deep ties to my university experience, this feels like as good a time as any to announce that PC Education Minister Stephen Lecce was my student council president when I was at Western, and that I'm pretty sure I voted for him. And I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Candleland. And when I went to U of T, there was a guy who everyone said looked exactly like me. And I never met him and hadn't thought about him in years until he popped up on Jeopardy in December. He finished third with $15. And this is Wag the Doug. Monthly podcast about Doug Ford.
Before we dig into the larger issues, it's important to acknowledge that Laurentian, which is a mid-sized university that mainly offers undergraduate programs, has its own share of both unique and self-inflicted problems. Reporting that's come out since its insolvency filing shows that the school had some pretty unorthodox accounting practices. For example, it appeared to be mixing research grant money, tuition money, and donations all into one bank account. This has left professors at the school that were granted outside funding, unable to access it, and student groups that fundraise for their activities also shit out of luck. It also pays professors a lot more money than even elite schools like McGill, and it offers courses in both English and French, which is expensive. But the provincial government is supposed to be the steward of Ontario's universities. It funnels billions of dollars to them every year and, in turn, has seats on boards and is basically in charge of ensuring that everything works, even though they are autonomous institutions. It's not a perfect comparison, but they're kind of like hospitals in that they take care of their own affairs, but there's not a lot of ambiguity as to whom they're ultimately answerable. But a couple weeks after Laurentian filed for creditor protection in court, Ross Romano, who's Doug Ford's colleges and universities minister, told reporters that he'd known about the school's fiscal mess for six months, which was kind of a different tack than he took when he first spoke to the press after the creditor filing was announced. At that time, he said, it's deeply concerning that Laurentian University has found itself in a situation where such drastic and immediate action is needed to ensure its long-term sustainability. So he kind of had seemed surprised a little bit, and then it turns out he really shouldn't have been. So Romano's appointed a special advisor who's going to probe the school's finances, write up a report, and then the minister is set to decide whether the province goes full hog and introduces legislation that gives the government greater oversight of university finances, maybe at Laurentian, maybe at other places. We really don't know what that would look like. So this brings us to the PC's contradictory approach to university oversight. For ideological reasons, they want deep control over how these institutions operate, while at the same time, they don't actually give a shit about them. There's a bunch of different things that they've done over the past two and a half, three years. One of the first moves they made was to force all universities to adopt free speech policies that uphold the Chicago principles. Now, I've like heard the phrase Chicago principles a bunch of times, but I personally find free speech debates to be the most boring possible topic. So I, I've never really dug into what that means. Can you tell me what those are, Jonathan? Oh, uh, all that jazz. The Chicago Principles are a broad statement affirming the primacy of freedom of speech that was adopted by the University of Chicago in 2015, and that, like a lot of broad statements affirming the primacy of free speech, kind of subscribes to the model of the marketplace of ideas. You know, like, for example, when someone denies your human rights or your dignity, the correct response is to debate your humanity with them, rather than to tell them to shut the fuck up and get off your campus, which, apparently, is more harmful than anything that they might say. It stemmed from an episode in 2014 when Condoleezza Rice, remember her, backed out of giving a commencement address at Rutgers following student protests, and then generally, you know, gathered momentum from the whole conservative-slash-boomer panic around trigger warnings and safe spaces. You know, the I idea of, you know, conscientiousness as a kind of moral weakness. You know, having all the universities that dropped the Chicago principles, I think of as kind of like if Doug Ford had forced every university and college to erect a statue of Christy Blatchford, as though distaste or vulnerability 
is itself a virtue to be emulated and looked up to. So we got free speech warriorism from the PCs, and then we got rules about how schools can collect student fees. That seemed to be an attempt to, in lots of critics' minds, drain funds from student newspapers, radio stations, unions, LGBTQ clubs, while they also made it mandatory for students to keep paying fees for things like sports. That got shut down by the courts, but I think it made it pretty clear what the PCs think of universities from an ideological standpoint. Yeah, um... I mean, for, first of all, yeah, the government is appealing that court decision, the divisional court decision, and it's scheduled to be heard late next month. And Zoom court is fun, everyone. You could just leave it on the background while you do other things. And uh, it's a really neat way to get acquainted with the justice system. But anyway, I think this is the first time in the show that I've turned to Doug Ford's own memoirs, if you can call them that for insight. Um, thankfully, the Toronto Public Library had zero holds on the ebook for 2016's Ford Nation, Two Brothers, One Vision, which I still regret not picking up uh, from a remainder table in Stratford for, I think it was $4.99. I took a photo, but I can't quite make out the numbers. I mean, it may have just been 99 cents. Remember when Doug Ford announced that book and he got all of these reporters to come to his house and they thought he was going to announce that he was running for PC leader or, or mayor or something, like some sort of big announcement, and it was just Look at my book. PR <laughs> story. It's not going to be the four or five other people that have written books, the untrue stories, as I call them. It's going to be fact, factual, and it's going to be the most exciting book that this country's ever seen when it comes to politics. Oh my goodness! Glad I never have to go to a press conference there again uh, at uh, his mother's house. Um, late mother's house now. So anyway, in the book, his attitude toward post-secondary education is actually laid out with a fair amount of clarity. And it's not necessarily a bad or a wrong attitude or anything, but I feel like it does inform a lot of what we've talked about so far and what we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode. So he writes bluntly, or here his ghostwriter writes bluntly. For starters, I never finished college. I don't regret that at all, but I think about it sometimes, and whenever I give speeches to high school students, I like to encourage them to think outside of going to university. Don't get me wrong, university is a critical experience for those who can do it, but that's not everybody. Looking at a high school audience, I know some kids are sitting there thinking, my god, where am I going next? For those young people, I always like to tell them a few stories. For instance, even if you cut lawns, maybe the summer job in your neighborhood, if you go knock on some doors, get yourself 12 customers, all of a sudden you're in the lawn care business, etc, etc, about carpenters. And so I explained to high school audiences that not everybody needs to be an academic. The main thing is, whatever you do, you just have to stay focused and don't give up. And then more to the specific, he explains, I knew I didn't have the marks for university, like many of the kids in the audiences I speak to today. So he started college, business administration diploma course at Humber in the fall of 1984. And he writes, right from the start, I didn't think it was for me. I was bored silly in the lectures, and there were no varsity sports at Humber back then. All in all, college was pretty disappointing after how much I'd loved high school. But as it turned out, it wasn't a problem for very long. And basically, he explains that uh, the teachers or the TAs had gone on strike. He wrote that the day I got to campus only to find the classes cancelled, I turned around and went straight back home. Then I put in a suit and tie and drove up to Deco, which was his family company. Yeah, I mean, that's his life. I, if anything, it's kind of impressive that someone who didn't complete even a month of or only completed a month of post-secondary is premier. I actually give him credit for that. Still, this idea of clearly not a fan of, you know, liberal arts or education for its own sake or, you know, academia generally 
a lot of you know interest in practical skills in entrepreneurship in working at your dad's business or whatever and that's you know that's fine that that's a view that's one path people can take and the advice he's offering to students there as he says it's not bad advice but it definitely has informed his government's approach to post-secondary education and for whom it ought to be, for what it ought to be, and how the funding should work. Like, as we mentioned just now, the Student Choice Initiative basically said, you know, student fees can't be mandatory for basically anything except for sports. And as he notes there, basically sports was the only thing that really interested him, and there happened to be no sports at uh, Humber at that time. Yeah, and what he said, um, you know, his, his like advice that you just read makes me think about the performance-based funding model that the PCs uh, instituted, which is kind of another one of their big policy moves on the post-secondary front. They call it the new Made in Ontario performance-based funding model. So exciting. Basically, what it does is ties how much money universities get from and, and colleges get from the government to how well their students do in the job market once they graduate. So basically, instead of a majority of funding being determined by enrollment as it is now, a majority of university funding in this formula will instead be determined by such factors as graduate employment earnings, how much funding the university gets from industry sources, economic impact, and graduate employment rate in a related field, which is like, you know, what's a related field for philosophy? I mean, for for Canadian studies or what would a related field for anthropology be like would that be like anything that involves humans or at least some reasonably intelligent primates of some sort it's transparently an attack on the liberal arts in general this model was set to kick in last spring when the pandemic hit and the government ended up delaying it for another two years so university and colleges funding won't actually be tied to how good their graduates are at getting jobs until the 2022-2023 school year but by that time, Laurentian, for example, will have $4 million of its annual funding riding on whether its grads get jobs, another $2 million relying on placing its students in co-ops and internships, and a bunch more tied to how important the school is to its community and other strange quote-unquote metrics like that and, and like the ones you said earlier, Jonathan. So the PCs also canceled three university satellite campuses that had been planned by the former liberals around the GTA. Yeah. At the time, that was mostly viewed as Doug Ford getting in a slight against his PC leader predecessor, Patrick Brown, who had just recently been elected to mayor of Brampton, which is where one of the satellite campuses was supposed to go. Uh, the other two were going to be in Milton and Markham. In hindsight, I don't know if canceling those campuses was actually the worst idea. I think it's fair to say that the liberal win government never really met a university project they didn't like and had been promising to build new campuses and schools kind of as a vote-buying ploy, which has never been more true than of the French language university they promised, which has become just a disaster. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I heard, you know, I, I'd heard there was going to be a whole new French language university in Ontario. It's come up before. But it wasn't until we were preparing this episode and someone asked, well, where's it going to be, that Allison reminded us that it's slated for Toronto. Yeah, some quick background then. 
So in 2017, Kathleen Wynne made a really big to-do about pledging to build Ontario's first standalone francophone university and said it would be located in downtown Toronto. It was kind of this cosmopolitan dream that perhaps ended up being too cosmopolitan for the reality of Ontario. Uh, It was supposed to have up to 2,000 students on campus by the end of this decade. But when the PCs got elected, they very clearly hated the whole plan and Doug Ford really quickly announced he was scrapping it, mostly because it was a waste of money. So cue the backlash, uh, which was a very big part of, of Doug Ford's early term. The move actually led to one of his MPPs, Amanda Simard, quitting the PC caucus. Uh, she later joined the Liberals about a year later. And the Trudeau government ended up kind of quietly swooping in to basically pay for the school for the first five years. So it is a real thing. It's set to start taking students in September, so about six months from now. But it very recently came out that just 47 people had applied to attend, and only about 30 of them put it as their first choice on their university applications. They're supposed to have 200. I mean, 47 is such a sad number unless they're all like, Ronan looking to avenge their master's death or something. Yeah, and since that news came out, the president of the school resigned. Uh, The school says that wasn't why he resigned. I don't know if I believe that, but who knows? It's hard to say what's actually going to happen with this thing. So Allison found these delightful promotional materials on their website, and we shall read from some of it. We are in downtown Toronto, the fourth largest city in the Americas, after Mexico City, New York, and Los Angeles. Which, first of all, is like, did they forget Brazil exists? Anyway, being taught exclusively in French while living in a predominantly English-speaking environment will allow you to use Canada's two official languages on a daily basis. Resolutely urban, UOF's campus is located at 9 Lower Jarvis Street in the heart of what is called the Innovation Corridor. Everyone calls it that, yes. Our neighbors are also dynamic innovation organizations and include Artscape Daniels Launchpad, Waterfront Innovation Center, Mars, Sidewalk Labs, and Chorus. So I remember that when I started university, people from out of town were kind of excited to see much music in person. And I'm really happy that Francophone Gen Zers will now get to have that same thrill by going to class around the corner from AM640 and the John Oakley Show. And frankly, if this means that drunken students will get to break into the chorus building after hours to ride their giant slide, and there is a giant slide that it's cruelly not, not open to the public, I am all for it. Yeah, so it sounds like they're just like renting a couple floors in an office building, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, I, I don't think they have a tower there. Although it'd be funny if they did. It sounds like something that we'd build. And Yeah, I mean, I think Doug Ford might have been actually on, on the right track about this one, too. Because, you know, here's the other thing that, that brings us back to Laurentian. Laurentian and a few other schools like the University of Ottawa, for example, already offer fully French language degrees. So if Laurentian is having trouble attracting French language students, why are we setting up a whole other school to sort of pilfer them away? Also in Toronto, which is like probably like the least francophone friendly part of the province. And I know we're going to get into the international student issue and, and how this uh, affected Laurentian and, and the, you know, the system as a whole. But that first paragraph you read about the Americas really read as if it was written with international students in mind. Yeah, certainly people from outside the hemisphere anyway. So at first, we, yeah, we do have to talk about what 
forwarded to students in Ontario. Another thing forwarded to students in Ontario, let's say, uh, namely slashing OSAP grants. So the Liberals have put in place a grant program that would guarantee free college and university for lower-income students in the province, which was pretty pretty big deal. It's a good thing. But that was eliminated, as were most OSAP grants that students often received in conjunction with the loans. And to make up for scrapping those grants, Ford cut tuition across the board by 10%. That's what we call a regressive tax. Yeah, because, I mean, even wealthy students are getting this 10% reduction in tuition fees, while lower-income students saw the entire assistance program they relied on eliminated. Although, I mean, if the government wanted to cut fees by 100% and fund free tuition for everyone, I'd be I'd be in favor of that. It's interesting to think back and remember that it was Marilee Fullerton, who is the PC's current minister in charge of long-term care, which has clearly been just a complete disaster for the past year amid the pandemic, that she was the post secondary minister in charge at the time of the OSAP cuts. It's always fun when someone botches one file and then they send them somewhere else where actual lives are at stake and, you know, figure what what could go wrong. So the 10% tuition cut brings us back around to Laurentian because universities didn't see this discount coming and, you know, many, including Laurentian, didn't have a lot of options when it came to making up the difference. So it turns out that one of the only places post-secondary institutions in Ontario have to turn if they need to bring in extra cash is to recruiting international students. And Laurentian had already been struggling on that front. Uh, You know, it's a lot harder to lure students to your mid-sized university in Sudbury than it is to, say, the University of Toronto or a computer science-focused school like the University of Waterloo. I mean, I've always wanted to see Science North, but uh, maybe that's just me. But uh, Laurentian also lost about 150 of his international students in 2018 when the Saudi Arabian government suspended scholarships to Canada, sparked by Christian Freeland, who was then the Foreign Affairs Minister, tweeting her support for imprisoned blogger Raif Badawi and his sister Samar, who had also just been imprisoned. That incident affected a lot more universities than just Laurentian, but I think what it illustrates is sort of the fickle nature of relying on international students to stock your universities, especially when you're in a province that already has a lot of universities and always, or at least always when there's a liberal government in power, seems to find the political will to build more of them. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. Joining us to break down exactly how Ontario post-secondary institutions have come to rely so heavily on international students is Alex Usher, president of Higher Education Strategy Associates, a consulting firm based in Toronto. I wonder if first you could tell us about the impacts of Premier Doug Ford and, and the PCs abruptly cutting tuition fees by 10% a couple years ago, and whether institutions were prepared for that, and, and how they've had to weather that change. So I think everybody was braced for some kind of cut. Um, I think most people thought it would come on the operating grant side rather than the tuition side. The effect of doing it on the tuition side rather than the operating grant size was that it 
disproportionately affected institutions that were committed to enrolling domestic students because the 10% didn't apply to international students. So, you know, in theory, if you had 50% of your budget in tuition fees and you had no international students, it was a 5% cut. At a place like University of Toronto, where, you know, international student tuition is maybe 60, 70% of the total, um, it was a lot less than that. <laughs> but at institutions like uh, Laurentian, like Lakehead, uh, you know, had under 10% international, they were losing four, four and a half, five percent of their budget, basically. So the situation with Laurentian has gotten people talking about Ontario University's reliance on international students. Uh, and, and you just mentioned that as well. How did we get to a point where institutions like University of Toronto and, and some of the other large ones are, are so reliant on international students and, and smaller schools are kind of forced to, to compete on that? So first of all, it's not just Ontario. I think, in fact, British Columbia, they're probably more reliant in some respects. Nova Scotia, certainly we would see that. So there's a number of places in Canada where this is true. There's an iron triangle in higher education. There's what institutions spend. There's what the public pays through taxes. And there's what students pay through tuition fees. And the thing to remember is that we've never had any significant cuts in what institutions spend. If you look over the last mm -hmm. 10 or 15 years, institutional spending goes up, inflation plus one, inflation plus two every year. Public funding has been flat since the great financial crisis, since 2009. There's no increase in public funding at all mm -hmm. after inflation. And tuition is basically even after inflation too for domestic students. So what's left? International students. It's very simple. So, I mean, I think the, the way to describe international students is that they have been a lifeline to institutions who've been told that they can't really raise tuition on domestic students and they haven't got a raise from government in 13 years. So literally 100%, this is not just Ontario, but nationally, 100% of the new money in post-secondary operating grants in the last five years has come from international students. Every raise, every <laughs> uh, new hire, everything new has been dependent on, on these international students. We could have had institutions that cut back their budgets. We could have had institutions that had lower salary increases for staff. We could have had fewer staff, all sorts of things, right? We chose not to do that. We said there is a way to continue expanding our higher education system, mm -hmm. despite the fact that we have fewer domestic students, despite the fact that there's, you know, after inflation, there's no more money coming in. We have that option and we're going to take that option. You refer to BC and uh, to Nova Scotia, but like, are there other countries as well that are taking a similar approach to post-secondary? And like, are there universities in Australia or Iceland, Iceland or Japan sort of screwed as well if they see a drop-off? Australia was the trailblazer. They were the first ones to go mm. down this path, probably about 10 years before we did. The United Kingdom as well. Canada, uh, you know, has moved in this direction fairly quickly since about 2012. Mm. And the real impetus was that that was when we had a dem our demographic bust started. You know, the, the number of 18-year-olds dropped quite significantly around 2012 and has kept dropping in most of the country. So it's almost bottomed out in Ontario now. And what that meant was is that they had spaces available. And this is actually yeah. arguably quite different from what Australia did. We've mostly managed to bring in all these international students without pushing out any Canadian ones. And it's because of this demographic bust. Now, eventually, the demographics will boom again beginning of the 2030s. It'll be interesting to see what happens then. It will be harder to keep playing the game that we've, we've been playing if domestic numbers are rising at the same time. Can you give us an idea of like what 
how much energy schools in Ontario, universities or colleges in Ontario put into recruiting international students? Like, is that something that, you know, some schools consider their strengths and have big budgets for recruitment, whereas other schools like uh, Laurentian is sort of struggling to compete and to to make up even a small percentage of their student body that way? I'm not convinced Laurentian was ever competing. I mean, there are some institutions which have more or less said, you know, we're turning ourselves over to be you know, in the college sector and and Centennial, I think is clearly one of them. Centennial at over 50%, they basically said, we're going to be an immigration gateway for the country. And that's their business model. There are Northern colleges, Cambrian, Canador, Northern. They've done deals with private colleges in uh, the GTA to create satellite colleges there so they can play the same game. You know, among universities, people have put different amounts of effort into it. I mean, U of T is now uh, roughly 25% international students. York is coming up on 30. You know, on the other hand, Nipissing is about 1%, 2%. This notion that, you, that if you're outside the GTA, you're not going to get international students is nonsense. Okay. Windsor is 20% international students. Uh, Algoma is 20% international students. In Nova Scotia, before COVID hit, Cape Breton University had gone over 50% international students. I think they were coming mm-hmm. up on 60. It can be done if you put the effort into it over a number of years. It's not, it's not a switch you can suddenly turn and expect to put, turn into money. But you have to work at it for a while for whatever reason some institutions have chosen not to. Sometimes it's a political reason, right? Sometimes they want to be known as the local institution. So I think Wilfrid Laurier, for instance, I mean, I think one of the ways they distinguish themselves strategically from Waterloo is they say, actually, no, we're the one for local kids. Does this sort of as broad range of business models now leave some institutions more vulnerable to financial collapse or due to various factors than, than others? Like, does it put them all in sort of different playing fields? And are we looking at a future or where if one thing shifts in the world or something, there could be some universities that are in a much better position than others? Would every university that has international students, would they prefer to have a magic wand waved and have that mm. replaced by government money? A lot of them would. Yeah, sure. But that's not on the cards. And it's like I said, it is that triangle. You don't have to play the international game. You just have to have budgets that are smaller as a result. There's nothing wrong with having fewer international students. You just have to cut back your financial commitments as well. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Not every, maybe not every university has to have, you know, the rock climbing walls and the luxury dining rooms and, the, and everything else, right? I mean, you can do it differently. Not everyone has to be U of T. So what would be a more sustainable model for universities or or if you think this intern like reliance on international students is sustainable like what's your idea of the best next 10 years in a dream world or what's actually going to happen <laughs> <laughs> i mean um, both actually you don't want governments coming in to pay for spending right like that's not the way you do it you, just, you they need a, a more rational mm-hmm. basis to do it you don't want them backstopping irrational spending Ontario has been the lowest spender on higher education in Canada for, if I'm not mistaken, 38 of the last 40 years. Oh, wow. It's a profoundly tripartisan commitment uh, in, in Ontario is just not to spend very much. The, and the, it was all those two years were sort of like the mid-McGinty years, actually. McGinty briefly pulled us in the ninth. But other than that, we're and in fact, I think we're so low that every other province is above the national average. Like That's how far Ontario pulls down the national average. The gap is enormous. Should they be spending more? Yes, absolutely. Of course they should. That'd be great. It would completely transform 
the nature of a number of Ontario institutions. It would make life a lot simpler. It would make life a lot uh, less volatile. Now, it's not clear to me that if they did that, that institutions would necessarily stop getting international students because, hey, money, <laughs> right? It's like, hey, we, we know how to raise this, this money. We just go ahead and get students. Why would we stop just because somebody else is giving us more money? Uh, once you turn on that tap, as, as long as those institutions are good at it, why would they stop? Um, I mean, it would give a better floor to institutions that are not very good at it. But that's about the only thing it would do. Now, to me, this is neither here nor there, right? In the sense that we're whatever it is, $20 billion, $30 billion in deficit this year. The likelihood of any significant increase in post-secondary education funding over the next five years, I would say, is as close to zero as makes no odds. And I think we'll be lucky not to see cuts. Uh, as we come out of COVID. And therefore, right, if you're saying that we, we can't have international students, I actually, th- I actually think there's lots of room to grow international students, regardless of the right or wrong. I think there's lots of room to grow, particularly in those institutions that haven't done very well so far. The only other option is that we start making higher education cheaper to provide. And that means either fewer staff faculty or we pay faculty less. And I think that's what you're seeing at Laurentian right now, right? As part of the restructuring, they are going to be letting people go. Do you see a future where more Ontario universities have to file insolvency claims or potentially shut down? I've noted that there's one other that that shares some of the same conditions, and that's Nipissing. And, you know, I think OCAD-U is probably, you know, if if you're small and you don't have a lot of international students, although OCAD's okay on international, and you have volatile enrollments, you know, like Laurentian is an area where local enrollment is not very good because of demographic reasons. So they're dependent on their ability to get people out of the GTA and get people out of Ottawa, basically. Um, if you get one or two bad years, you can be in trouble. And I think that's the difference, right? Is that big universities have got big cushions. They got years of reserves. They can do all sorts of things, right? Small institutions, by and large, two bad years is, is, puts you in trouble. And that was the thing about Laurentian is they had not a lot of bad years. They had, they had a lot of like middling bad years, right? So six or seven years in a row of deficits should have been a warning sign, but mm-hmm. none of those years were individually bad enough to put up a big red flag. And now it's time for this month's foreseeable disaster of the month. So this month, neither Jonathan nor I are going to be making a prediction for the foreseeable disaster of the month. Because thanks to TVO reporter John Michael McGrath, we already have one, folks. (laughs) Here's this exchange on February 11th with the co-chair of Ontario's COVID science advisory table, right after the table released modeling that projected a massive third COVID wave if the Doug Ford government lifts a stay-at-home order and reopens the province. Which is pretty much what he's doing. Your next question comes from John McGrath from TDO. John, please go ahead. Thank you. Good afternoon. I confess, uh, Dr. Brown, I'm, I'm a bit confused by this presentation. Uh, you say that uh, sticking with the stay-home order will help, but the stay-at-home order is, is ending almost everywhere in Ontario on Tuesday. Uh, you say that RT needs to be below 0.7, and we have never actually achieved that. And we're about to you know, if not reopen, we're going to reduce a lot of the public health measures. And those public health measures, as you say, uh, as they're listed, cases could rise dramatically. Am I missing something here, or is this presentation actually predicting a disaster? 
No, I, I don't think you're missing anything. Uh, the cases will likely rise given the variance of concern. Uh, the need to keep that R down is really, really critical. Uh, but there are a number of things that need to be weighed in making these decisions. And that was Wag the Doug, a show about not missing anything. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and you can find me on Twitter at Goldsby. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Queen's Park Today. Our producer is Demilola Onime, our finishing producer is Kevin Sexton, our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt, and our theme music is, as always, by and or remixed by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener supported. If you like what we do, support us. Go to wagthedug.com or click the link in the show notes. 